Terrific. Okay, I'm going to call this session to order. My name is Tucker Carlson. I'm the editor of the Daily Caller in Washington. Um, Cato asked me to moderate this, which I will do with a very light hand. Cato also asked me to open up with about five minutes of my views on the war on drugs, which the more I thought about it, the more I thought it would be a bad idea since my views are entirely muddled. Um, I actually tried to score some weed here this morning, and it turns out I misread the whole drug conference <laughs> description. Um, it's not that kind of conference, so my apologies to any of you I hit up. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry. Um, uh, but it seems to me like this panel likely is a group of people who broadly agree with one another, and so I will confine my role to that of devil's advocate and try to ask annoying and infuriating questions because that's important. And if there's one pitfall of a group of libertarians, you don't want people agreeing with each other too much. Um, so I will really try my best to be unpleasant, but in a civil way. Uh, so I hope you will bear in mind that that's what I'm trying to do. Um, uh, so I'm going to introduce each speaker in turn. Each will speak for about 15 minutes. Uh, and a couple have, have presentations. And then we'll open it up um, to hostile questions or attacks or whatever follows uh, from the audience. And I will do my best uh, to moderate that. If you could you know, keep it verbal and not physical, um, I'd appreciate it. Uh, first up is Tim Lynch. He's a director of the Project on Criminal Justice at Cato. His research interests, and many of you already know this, uh, include the war on terrorism, the drug war, the militarization of police tactics, thank you for that very much, and gun control. Uh, in 2000, he served on the National Committee to Prevent Wrongful Executions. He's filed several amicus briefs uh, with the U.S. Supreme Court in cases that involve constitutional rights. He's the editor of a couple of really interesting studies on drug criminalization and criminal justice, uh, and he is also, thank God, a lawyer. Tim Lynch. Thank you, Tucker. Um, I want to begin my talk with some good news. Uh, I believe that the prospects for drug policy reform in the U.S. are actually quite good. Uh, not that uh, next year or the year after we're going to be seeing the end of the drug war. But for those of us who have been on this drug war topic for a number of years, there's just this palpable sense that the momentum has shifted over. It's shifted over away from the drug warriors and over to uh, uh, the reform side of the debate. And so that's good news. And I wanted to start on that positive note because for the remainder of my talk, I'm going to be taking you on a brief tour through the American legal system and explaining some of the ways in which the drug war has inflicted serious damage on some of our bedrock legal principles. It's not a happy tour, but it's information that I think you need to know. The first principle that I want to discuss is the old idea that our homes should be afforded special legal protection. You've heard of the old English and American idea that our homes are supposed to be our castles. And there's that great old English case where that expression comes from. And it says that even if you have a shanty a hovel on the edge of town, even if it's shabbily built, and even if the rain comes in, even if the wind comes in, the rain comes in, the English king and his men can't come in unless they have a valid legal basis to do so. It's really an inspiring opinion. And it's, it's basically the point is even if you're poor, even if you don't have political connections, still even the king and his entire army can't cr cross that threshold into the poor tenement unless they have a valid warrant. That idea was written into the American Constitution into our Fourth Amendment that pro uh, prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. And a related idea to that is the knock and announce principle. That's the idea that the police 
before they come crashing in, they're actually supposed to go up to our homes, knock on the door, and give the owner an opportunity to come to the door and peacefully comply with the search. But as you know from watching TV, we are moving fast away from this knock and announce principle. The, the police come running up to the doors these days with their battering rams. It's one knock and the front door goes crashing down as they scream, uh, get down on the ground, we have a search warrant. Sometimes the police are using flashbang grenades uh, when they execute these raids with little thought given to whether or where the occupants are in the house and to whether or not there's children or elderly people in the home. Cato has published several studies on these violent no-knock raids, and we had the local mayor here in Berwyn Heights, Maryland, Shai Calvo, come to speak at Cato about his experience. You might recall he had nothing to do with the drug trade, but the drug agents were following some package that happened to be left on his front porch, and when he moved it into his home, moments later, drug agents came crashing in, shot both of his dogs in front of his elderly mother-in-law, and uh, stayed there for several hours until they determined that he had nothing to do with the drug trade, nothing to do with the package, and then they left. No apology that day, even in the days later when it became abundantly clear. They didn't even know at the time that he was the local mayor, uh, but in the, even in the days afterward, the police chief said uh, his agents had done nothing wrong. Uh, uh, no apology. This is, this is what they do. Uh, a few years ago, there was another incident in Atlanta, 80-year-old woman, Katherine Johnson, uh, shot and killed by drug agents as they were forcing open her front door. Uh, she thought she was about to be burglarized because she had nothing to fear. She was not involved in the drug trade. She took out a handgun, uh, violent confrontation where, where she was shot and killed. And an investigation into that incident found that the narcotics unit in Atlanta regularly lied to judges in order to get search warrants and they fabricated reports uh, on finding drugs during these mistaken raids that they made into wrong apartments and, and wrong homes. People are also losing their homes and businesses under these civil asset forfeiture laws. Uh, with civil asset forfeiture, the government can take property away from somebody without even having to convict them of a crime. Our friends at the Institute for Justice are representing a couple now who have been running their own hotel business for 20 and 30 years on a sprawling 10 acres of campus. This is a business that they've been building, building up over the years and they were planning on selling this business to support themselves in retirement. What is happening right now is the government's trying to seize their ho hotel and their property and their land because some of the guests in their hotel were selling drugs. And the, the government admits that they, they don't really have any evidence that the owners were involved in the drug trade, but because some of their guests had drugs, they're out to seize the entire uh, property. Uh, the, the attorneys for the Institute for Justice have estimated that they've you know, rented tens of thousands of rooms over the years, and .001 haven't been involved with the drug trade, but under these strict laws, the government still has a basis to go in and seize it, so their property, their retirement is now at risk in litigation uh, in the court. The Wall Street Journal had a front page article on this a few uh, weeks ago explaining that these types of seizures are going on all around the country. The second principle that I wanted to cover concerns the role of the military in uh, civilian law enforcement and especially uh, in drug law enforcement. The line that has traditionally separated the military from the civilian police is fading away. Uh, the military itself has been steadily expanding itself into policing. We've had National Guard units and uh, Marine Corps units operating inside the United States. And uh, 
We also know uh, that the Navy has been using their assets in the Caribbean to chase down smugglers uh, in planes and, and, and boats. Now that's one aspect. The military is getting more involved in policing. There's a second aspect to the militarization, and that's that the civilian police forces are more and more uh, emulating the tactics of the military. Again, we kind of see this on TV sometimes with their, with their training, their, the military garb, the helmets. They're getting surplus military equipment from the Pentagon. They're getting M16s, uh, uh, armored vehicles, and I mentioned that sometimes they're using these flashbang uh, grenades. According to an article in the New York Times last week, the DEA has several commando units that are now operating in other countries, such as Afghanistan, Haiti, Honduras, and Guatemala. And you see how upside down and backwards this is? We've got the DEA, a civilian police agency, creating commando units that are operating overseas, and we've got Marine Corps units, active duty military, operating in Texas. This is all getting all uh, backwards. The police and the military have two very different missions. The role of the military is to find and subdue the enemy. Uh, when we're talking about our police, these are people who encounter people who have constitutional rights. Okay? They're supposed to be trained to use the absolute minimum amount of force that's necessary to bring suspects into a court of law where disputes can be resolved peacefully. But when we're seeing our police units trained by our special forces, we're seeing uh, this is you know, asking for trouble. It's, it's a reckless style of policing that's going to lead to unnecessary confrontations and unnecessary killings. And this is a serious problem. The third legal principle that I wanted to talk about was the idea that we're losing the, the notion of criminal intent in our law. Lawyers call this concept mens rea. And it's the idea that in order for a crime to occur, somebody has to do something deliberately wrong. If I'm at an airport and I take somebody's suitcase off of, out of the baggage claim area, I have, and I've taken somebody else's suitcase, I haven't necessarily committed a crime. Even though I've t done a wrongful act, I've taken somebody else's suitcase. If I can just show quickly that, oh, it looked like mine, or maybe we have the same brand of Samsonite luggage, you know, that's an honest mistake. It's, it's not a crime. Uh, in order to prove a crime, you have to prove that somebody has this culpable, wrongful intent. But that is fading away in our law. We see it uh, sometimes in these evictions in public housing units, uh, where people, if they have any contact with drugs whatsoever, they're subject to eviction. Now, everybody thinks initially, well, this is for drug dealers, getting them out of public housing. But these laws are so strict that uh, anybody can be evicted on the slightest connection. Some elderly people went to the Supreme Court and said, oh, well, we didn't know our granddaughter uh, you know, had been buying marijuana on the playground. You know, we told her not to get involved in drugs. Uh, the, the authorities admitted they couldn't prove any awareness on the part of the grandparents, uh, but they said, your name is on the lease, she lives in your unit, you can get evicted. Very strict laws. We see this also in the zero tolerance policies in our schools. Crazy instances, which you may have seen from time to time in the news stories, where uh, kids are, are suspended or they actually get thrown out of school simply because they have uh, Alka-Seltzer uh, that they brought to school. Or they've, we've had instances of young women in high school uh, taking a birth control pill during the lunch hour. Uh, and th that's a drug. That's a pill. And suddenly they get suspended or, or, or they get ex expelled from the school and get this on their record. 
again, it's this zero tolerance concept where the authorities are not interested in the circumstances of the individual case. You had a pill. Pills are not allowed in school. End of discussion. This is also creeping into the criminal law itself. Florida right now has a strict liability felony law that's right now being challenged in the courts. Again, it's this concept of anybody who has possession of drugs uh, is subject to arrest and prosecution. And it's not just you know a clear baggie of drugs. I mean, this is going to cover, uh, if you think about it, again, luggage, boxes, uh, anything where you're in possession of the drug. You know, think about UPS carriers, FedEx workers, anybody who's carrying around boxes, bags, uh, uh, suitcases, and luggage. All of these people are subject to arrest and uh, prosecution under this very strict Florida uh, law. And the prosecutors just say, don't worry, we'll sort out, you know, kind of like the school principals, we'll sort out which ones, you know, should be going into court and which ones should not. But that legal protection of uh, criminal intent is not there in the law anymore, or it's fading away, I should say. The next constitutional principle that has been damaged is uh, federalism, uh, the, the idea that's embodied in the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution. This is something that we talk a lot about Cato because under our Constitution, if you read it, the federal government is supposed to be a government of limited and enumerated powers. But the problem is, is that the feds are constantly trying to expand uh, their jurisdictional reach. Yesterday, we heard that the Supreme Court announced that it's going to be hearing that constitutional challenge to Obamacare, and a lot of the conservatives are leading the challenge to say, yeah, President Obama and the Democrats, they overreached with that health care law. And I think they're right about that, but uh, the conservatives tend to be very selective in the ways in which they invoke this Tenth uh, Amendment federalism principle, because a few years ago, there was another case before the Supreme Court. California had changed its state law to allow that medical exception to marijuana, so uh, they had changed their state law, but the federal prosecutors out there said, hey, we still have a law against marijuana on the federal books, and there's no exception for, for uh, medical situations. So the federal prosecutors were threatening people with prosecution in federal court. And some of the medical marijuana patients, Angela Rach and uh, Diane Munson, went to the Supreme Court to say, hey, this threat that were under uh, by the feds, uh, it, they challenged the constitutional basis for that. They said if the federal government can reach into our backyards where we're not engaged in commercial transaction, if they can reach into our backyards where we're growing marijuana for medicinal purposes, you know, there's, there's no limit on federal power. But the Bush administration came in and, and defended the law. They said, yeah, our, our jurisdiction reaches that far. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court agreed over a very strong dissent by, filed by Justice Clarence Thomas. And Thomas made that point. He's like, if the interstate commerce clause can be stretched so far that it extends to people growing marijuana in their backyards, you know, what limits on federal power is there? And as we've seen, President Obama and his Justice Department is following up on the, the Bush administration's policy by continuing to threaten people in California, Washington, and these other states that have uh, made that uh, exception in their law for, for medical marijuana. The last safeguard that I want to briefly touch upon uh, concerns free speech. Now, we haven't lost it, but uh, there are still situations that come up in these drug war contexts where free speech comes under attack. There was a federal prosecution in Kansas two years ago, and our friends at the Pain Relief Network thought that uh, uh, some doctors were being railroaded uh, by federal prosecutors in court there, and so they were trying to bring attention to the case and to this injustice. So they 
took out billboards and distributed flyers around town saying that the federal prosecutors were running amok and they were persecuting two doctors who were uh, not involved in the drug trade. And the federal prosecutors didn't like this very much and they actually went to a judge and tried to get a gag order on the pain relief activists saying that they can't engage in that kind of activity uh, even though they weren't a party to the case. And the judge slapped down this petition saying, you know, we do have free speech, you know, but activists can talk about what's going on in our courts, and if they think it's unjust, they can talk about it. So it was rejected, but the prosecutor then went to their subpoena power and tried to subpoena all of the records of the Pain Relief Network, and unfortunately basically put them out of business because they tried to fight the subpoena, and between the fines and the attorney's fees that were involved in fighting the subpoena over the years, they basically uh, went bank bankrupt. Now, it's bad enough when a federal prosecutor engages in conduct like that, but we've seen even worse conduct at the highest levels of our government, which is, such as the Attorney General and the drug czar. Again, when California changed its state law to allow that medical exception for marijuana, uh, Attorney General Reno at the time and the drug czar, Barry McCaffrey, were very, took a very hard line. They said, look, any doctor who discusses the pros and cons of using marijuana with their patients, we're going to revoke his license and we're going to threaten him with federal prosecution. Now, this was immediately challenged in the court as interfering with the uh, doctor-patient relationship and basic free speech. Why shouldn't a doctor be able to talk about the pros and cons of marijuana? So it was declared illegal and unconstitutional, but it took a few years of litigation where this was, uh, the outcome was uncertain as they were, were fighting this in the courts. So these free speech protections still come under attack in the drug war context. Now, what is the takeaway from all of this? Uh, from a big picture perspective, I do not think that as bad as the erosion of some of these legal principles is, I don't think that if we just talk about it more, bring it to the attention of more people, we're going to convince enough people in the United States to get to that tipping point where we're going to uh, end the drug war. I do think momentum is shifting over in our favor, but I think that's mainly for four reasons. The first reason why the, the uh, political climate uh, for drug policy reform is shifting here in the U.S., number one reason is crime is down in the U.S. It's way down by historical standards. So that is giving, I think, the uh, elected officials more room to talk about drug policy reform. The second reason why the, the, the debate is shifting is the fiscal crisis. Uh, everybody's feeling it. They're feeling it at the federal level. They're also feeling it at the state and local level. The crunch is on. And it's actually becoming less politically painful to, for people at the local level to talk about legalizing and taxing marijuana than it is for them to talk about cutting other things that the government is spending money on. That's how, how this fiscal crunch is affecting the drug policy debate. The third factor that I think is impacting things is some of what we've heard about on the previous panel. The, the horrendous violence that we're hearing about in Mexico, I think, is uh, having an impact on the debate. And also, uh, the, the experience in Portugal, the de drug decriminalization in that policy has, uh, here we have an example of a country that's moved in the direction of liberalization, and the dire prognostications that we heard about uh, have not come to pass. So I think that's having an impact on the debate as well. The fourth and final factor is what I call drug war exhaustion. Uh, Americans are just weary of this war. We've been at it for 40 years. We've spent a trillion dollars. Drugs are as widely available as they have been uh, forever. And uh, I just think 
more and more Americans, not a, there's not a huge shift, but a shift. More and more Americans are coming to the conclusion that this drug war has been given a chance to work. It, it hasn't. It's, it's failed. And between all these other things, these civil asset forfeiture abuses, uh, these, these heavy militaristic raids, people are getting tired of it. And I think there is a shift going on there. So I don't think that the erosion of constitutional safeguards by itself is making a difference, but I think we can keep the momentum for reform going so long as we continue to press on all of these fronts. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. That was interesting as hell. Uh, Harry Levine, uh, and infuriating in a good way. Uh, Harry Levine uh, will speak next. He's a professor in the sociology department at Queens College in New York City. Much of his uh, research and writing, which have won a bunch of awards, has focused on the history of addiction, about alcohol prohibition, regulation. He's written about crack and the war on drugs more generally. He's got a PhD from Berkeley, very smart guy, Harry Levine. It's a pleasure to be here today. It's really uh, to be. Uh, uh, Tim's uh, remarks are a, a fabulous opening for what I want to talk about. Um, I can only say a little bit today about what, what I and some colleagues have been doing, but fortunately I don't have to. Uh, let's see if this is going to work here. Oops, there it is. Okay. Um, uh, with several others, I run a, an outfit we call the Marijuana Research, Marijuana Arrest Research Project, and we've put up a website in the last month. Um, this is the, the first look at it. Um, it's up, and you can marijuana-arrests.com. It's got um, uh, reports that we've done. It's got data. It's got graphs. It's got uh, a whole range of things. And so what I can't talk about today, at least some of it, is up there. So... Um, takes pressure off of all of us. Uh, I, I wrote about alcohol prohibition and studied alcohol prohibition and, and the temperance movement in America and the, and the war on alcohol for, from a graduate student and through a whole bunch of years of my career. And I always felt that uh, if I could go back in time to the 1920s during um, uh, when uh, national constitutional prohibition was in effect, I could interview uh, people at the time and I could oppose it. I could maybe even speed up a little bit the ending of that uh, abysmal thing. Uh, when the war on drugs heated up in the mid-1980s, uh, it seemed to me I had been presented with my time travel opportunity um, of going back in time, in effect, um, coming from a more humane, a tolerant, and free future, and to say, to sort of both study what was going on and to end it. And so I have been doing that in a variety of ways. Along, along with me has grown up a, a uh, terrific drug policy reform uh, movement, um, of which I think this conference is a part. And starting about a few, five years ago, I decided somebody needed to be the world's expert on, on low-level marijuana arrests. There are now about half of them. Half of all drug arrests in the United States are marijuana arrests, and, and nearly 90% of them are misdemeanors, are uh, not felonies. The, 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 the focus on the on critics of the drug war and on, on prisons who focused on felonies uh, with lots of good reason, but the misdemeanors constitute the vast bulk of what's going on out there, and there was very little uh, work being done on that, and so uh, I started to do that and did that, first of all, in New York City, uh, uh, where I live. Um, New York City makes more of these arrests, these low-level marijuana arrests, than any place on earth. 
Uh, it begins in the early 1980s, excuse me, in the early mid-1990s with Rudolph Giuliani and his second police commissioner, but it continues through with uh, Michael Bloomberg to this day. Uh, since 1997, New York City has made over 500,000 possession arrests for tiny amounts. Um, everybody arrested is handcuffed, brought to the police station, fingerprinted, photographed, spent 24 hours in custody, spit out in the court the next day, and winds up with a permanent criminal record, which is the most serious long-term consequence of that. They are unexpungible. Those things are now available through com uh, commercial databases, uh, uh, employers, for all big box stores, um, for all kinds of uh, firms, uh, landlords, credit agencies, banks, schools, student loan um, funders, uh, licenses for beauticians, nurses, uh, teachers, uh, security guards, all depend upon not having drug arrest or drug conviction records. Uh, misdemeanors count. Two, two marijuana arrests can get somebody deported. One of them can prevent them from coming back into the country if they've gone uh, legally to go visit somebody for um, uh, a funeral or a wedding. Uh, I have a couple pictures. Um, first of all, this drug use question, really important. Um, for, for marijuana use, young whites use marijuana at higher rates than do blacks and Latinos. Am I too close? Too? I'm back up here. I apologize for blowing your ears. Uh, whites use marijuana at higher rates than do blacks and Latinos. But in New York City and everywhere in America, blacks are arrested at three, five, seven, ten, or more times the rate of whites for possessing marijuana. Blacks, the Jim Dwyer, a columnist from the New York Times, wrote a terrific piece. Whites smoke pot, but blacks get arrested. Blacks and Latinos get arrested. Um, that's some of the numbers, but I submitted some testimony that I gave, and it's in there, and it's on the website, so we won't worry about that. There's the jump that happens. Um, for um, 15 years, New York made averaged about three, three, less than 3,000 arrests a year. Um, they're now averaging over 40,000 arrests a year. In 2010, they made 50,000 arrests. Uh, that's sort of what it looks like. Um, that's a version of the, the arrest that was done by the New York Times. I'm just taking you through some quick pictures here. Um, I want to tell you about how they're done and why they're being done, which I think is critical to the whole story. Um, I've been interviewing police, prosecutors, if, when, we can, when they'll talk to me, uh, former prosecutors, uh, really, um, active duty and retired police, um, people who've been arrested, public defenders, attorneys, judges in occasion, and so on, trying to understand why these arrests are going on and what's happening. And what's true in New York is true, again, throughout the United States. Um, the police department doesn't talk about the arrests. It doesn't and, and that's true, again, everywhere. They don't, they don't display uh, charts showing rising number of arrests. They, even in, in the NYPD actually denies, or used to, deny that they were making these arrests. Um, 
But what we learned, and uh, what Lee can tell you, actually, in, 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 uh, in more detail, is there's significant constituencies within police departments who benefit from these arrests or like these arrests. Um, why do they like the arrests? Ordinary uh, patrol cops and narcotics police can like the arrests because they're relatively safe. Policing is dangerous work. The goal here is to get home at the end of the day. Uh, but arresting teenagers and young adults with possessing small amounts of marijuana is not unlikely to get one shot or stabbed. Uh, the, um, most people that police arrest, for, especially for misdemeanors, are often pretty scuzzy characters. Um, they're dirty, they're smelly, um, they might have a body lice or even various diseases. But marijuana, uh, people who possess small amounts of marijuana, teenagers, by and large, do not. They don't have AIDS, they don't have hep C, they don't have tuberculosis. Um, unlike junkies and drunks, they're unlikely to throw up on the officer or in the car. They are, as, as one officer put to me early on, they're clean, meaning physically clean. Um, they're high-quality arrestees from an, from, an, from an officer's point of view. Uh, when, a, when a cop arrests somebody, they are married to the person. They're physically in close contact with them. To take the fingerprints, you physically hold somebody's hands. Um, they accompany them to the cells. They accompany them sometimes to the courts. Police officers in New York and lots of other cities get overtime pay. Um, need overtime pay because the pay is often very low for police. In New York, it's, it's historically low levels. Uh, but an officer can get three or four hours of time and a half overtime pay if they make an arrest toward the end of a shift. So um, they will stop 10 or so uh, young people, um, pat them down, and search them, as you can see going on right here, which has actually happened. I didn't take this picture, but it's actually not far from where I live. Uh, and uh, if you, they stop 10 teenagers, they will find some marijuana in their pockets, or fewer. Um, the productivity, they're under extraordinary pressure to, to show productivity and uh, write tickets and make arrests, and the uh, marijuana arrests allow them to do that. It works all the way up the, the food chain. Um, supervisors like the marijuana arrests. Why do supervisors like the marijuana arrests? Well, the number one problem facing police supervisors uh, every day is where the hell are my cops right now and what are they doing? And if they're out doing, writing lots of summonses and doing low-level arrests, then there's paper records showing where they are. They, they were at this corner at this hour, and they wrote a ticket. They were at this corner at this hour. They did a stop and frisk. They were at this corner at this hour, this time, and they arrested somebody for possessing marijuana. Uh, very important all the way up the food chain. Supervisors in New York and in some other cities make overtime pay when their officers make overtime pay. That matters. Uh, they too are under productivity uh, stress, and, and even the lowest level desk sergeant um, and the, or, or lieutenant who commands a squad, um, and being able to show arrest numbers allows everybody to show productivity and relax, and they're the easiest arrests to make. In New York City, more people are arrested for possessing small amounts of marijuana than for any other crime whatsoever. This is almost certainly true in many other cities or in western places where you, you have to take the cars out. 
but m the more people are arrested for possessing small amounts of pot than just about anything. Uh, and in New York, it's more than anything. The um, supervisors up the top of the, the hierarchy like the marijuana arrests because it gives them flexibility. If something big should come up, there's a fire, there's a bombing, there's a, there's a president's in town, water main breaks, subway breaks down, they need to send cops over to do something. They can pull them off of these low-level narcotics arrests or other kinds of low-level misdemeanor arrests, and no ongoing investigation or other kinds of crime is affected. Um, they can keep them there for as long as they need to and send them back. Since they're not talking about these things, nobody knows. It doesn't matter. Um, they provide fantastic training for young cops. Uh, when police come out of the academy, they all know very, very little about the streets. Um, often they're rural or even exurban cops who, who haven't had much contact with the cities. Um, but um, you send them out to do a lot of stop and frisk, to write a lot of tickets, and to make low-level marijuana arrests, and they do that day in and day out for a year. They touch a lot of young people. Uh, they have conversations with them. They make gazillions of arrests. They put people in handcuffs. They write them up. If they screw one up, it doesn't matter. Nobody cares. By the end of the year, they're sort of beginning, beginning to be cops in some way. You can maybe begin, some wash out, and some you can begin to use for other kinds of things. Um, it's really a very effective way to train young police. Um, the cost is borne entirely by the victims of this policy. And finally, there's this pressure that starts at the federal government that goes to state police and local police and to get as many people as possible into the system, meaning getting fingerprints, photographs, eye scans now, uh, and DNA swipes if you possibly can. There's nothing the police can do that gets many, as many people into the system as, as the low-level drug arrests, the marijuana arrests. Um, it's, a, it's a huge net for catching people to put in your database. So the police like these arrests or benefit from the arrests. And one of the things that became very clear in the California Proposition 19, um, a campaign initiative in, in, in uh, 2010, was that it was law enforcement, police, prosecutors, sheriff's departments, who constituted almost the entire opposition to Proposition 19. They were the, the, the political force. It wasn't religious. The religious groups, by and large, are not involved, and the, and the fundamentalist um, uh, Christians are not involved, by and large, in the anti, um, in, 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 in sort of fighting the drug war and in opposing uh, uh, marijuana reform initiatives and drug policy reform initiatives. Uh, it's not in scripture. Cannabis, cannabis is not mentioned in scripture. And they, don't, they have enough fights already. Um, there's no real sizable anti-drug movement that matters in this way. But the police have lobbies. The police have power in state legislatures, in cities, and in Congress. The police and law enforcement, have, they, are, they are, you know, 5,000-pound gorillas with, they don't need much. They need some funding. Um, and, they can, and they can stand next to a politician and say, this person is, is in favor of, of fighting crime and we support him, or they can kill a politician. So I have a punchline here. Actually, there's one more piece. The federal government plays a huge role in making this happen. 
Um, there's a federal government funds local police departments through two programs, one called COPS, but the biggest one is called Burn Grants, B-Y-R-N-E. Uh, they can buy helicopters and they can buy vests and they can buy bullets and they can buy um, notebooks and computers and anything they need. And then they have to justify what they, what they get for these, with this money. And the main justification is arrests. And, the, and this is drug money, and so there are drug arrests. Now, they don't break it down, but the drug arrests are heavily marijuana arrests. Um, one of the things that could be done is to literally change the burn grant regulations. The, the Attorney General could do that tomorrow. The Congress could demand it. Um, members of Congress could work on this. Uh, to literally just say the burn grant money can't be used to, uh, or rather that misdemeanor drug arrests or misdemeanor marijuana arrests can't be used for burn grant productivity measures. You could defund the police activities around these things. And I would love to, if anybody has any contacts on Capitol Hill and might have congressional staff and or, con or members of, of Congress who would want to work on this, please contact me and let me know. And my punchline is the following. People think that the way to end the drug arrests often is by um, ending drug prohibition or marijuana prohibition. We end marijuana prohibition, it will end the, the marijuana arrests. And I want to suggest that the reverse is true. That by ending the marijuana arrests, by getting the police out of this, you can remove the major political opponent to drug policy reform, in particular marijuana reform. Um, if, if marijuana means no more to police departments than broccoli, if they don't get any funding for it, if they don't get any credit for it, then they won't care what a state legislature or a city government or Congress does about it. So by going after the arrests, it's, I suggest more can be done to reduce the power of the, of the supporters of drug prohibition than just about anything else. Thank you. Fascinating. Thank, thank you, Harry. I got to say, I think you're a little unfair in your descriptions of the personal hygiene of crackheads and drunks. I know some clean ones. Um, Lee Maddox is our final speaker this morning. Uh, she's a special assistant state's attorney who joined the University of Maryland criminal clinical program, rather, in 2008. She retired as a captain from the Maryland State Police the previous year, 2007. In the 90s, she worked as a trooper and supervisor, while later serving as the commander of the Baltimore-Washington Metro Troop. She's a member of the Executive Board for Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and she is a practicing lawyer. Thanks. Thank you, Tucker, for that warm introduction. <clears throat> and thank you, Cato, for having me here today. I'm very excited to be here with you. I'm very honored. To my global <coughs> friends, as a retired police leader and current legal educator, I urge you not to follow the United States and its radical criminal justice framework of drug prohibition through mass incarceration. Our policies and practices in drug enforcement have been an unjustifiable failure. 
By following the United States as a model, you will be leading your community and your community and your country towards the path of destruction and widespread chaos. My evolution and transformation on drug policy has been based on my desire to reduce drug-related violence, restore affected communities, and protect the rule of law from the human rights atrocities that have sprung from our failed policies. For the past two decades, I have been watching, enforcing, fostering, advancing, and studying the war on drugs. While I am now committed to doing all I can to end the drug war, my, drug pa my passion, my voice in this does not flow singularly from my concerns about the erosion of individual rights. My voice is about reducing the violence, restoring communities, and ending our collective reliance on mass incarceration as a form of social control. Prohibition and mass incarceration have never shown evidence of, reduce, of reducing addiction rates. As a young trooper, I used to take pride in arresting people for simple possession of marijuana. Drug arrests were, in fact, encouraged by my supervisors and commanding officers. My worth to the organization and my effectiveness as a police officer was measured in part by the number of drug arrests I made each month. Later in my career, first as a barrack commander at the JFK Highway Barrack, and then as a troop commander for the Baltimore-Washington Metro Troop, I witnessed and endorsed drug arrests and seizures on a daily basis. As a commanding officer, I rewarded my brave troopers for their interdiction efforts, whether through training opportunities, awards, public praise, or procurement of new tools to pr promote the drug interdiction policies I made sure the troopers under my command understood that drug enforcement was a priority. The work was high risk, passionate in a way of young lovers, and in hindsight, lacking in sage wisdom. Much of the work was done at the height of the legal battles, accusing the Maryland State Police of operating under a set of policies and practices that supported and contributed to racial profiling. During this period of entrenchment, I am sad to admit that I neither offered nor received any department-mandated training and or education on the collateral consequences of a drug conviction. I had no concept that the criminal justice system set all up entangled for failure. My wisdom during this period was less than sage. I've been inoculated for hep C and received lectures on how to report bloodborne pathogen exposures and avoid needle sticks. But I was never given the tools to help addicts receive treatment or how to stop the spread of disease, except through models of mass incarceration. My awakening to the notion of to the notion of racial profiling, uneven enforcement, and violence driven by prohibition was slow, painful, and eventually life-altering. My most pivotal moment was the night that I learned my good friend, 
Trooper First Class Ed Totley, an undercover narcotics agent with Maryland State Police, had been shot here in the very streets of this city. As I rushed into the emergency room, filled shoulder to shoulder with police, a friend touched me and said, Lee, he's gone. He's gone. I stood in the line of the officers snaked around the corridor of the emergency room, waiting to pay my final respects before his body was moved to the morgue. His head was wrapped in the quasi-turban, holding his brains intact. The respirator had been removed, and his body was still, but warm and soft to my touch. As I rested my hand on his chest, I said a prayer for his family, his friends, and for myself. And as I did so, I felt the presence of every police officer who had lost their lives to the war on drugs. I felt the presence of my dear friend Lisa and every other victim caught in the crossfire of our failed policies. I felt them in that darkened hospital room with me. Their spirits were careening down from the walls. They were shouting and mocking me, justice, justice, what is this of your justice? It was my Damascus moment. As I transitioned from law enforcement to legal education and community luring, I began to have conversations with other police officers who shared my views about the drug war, the problems and the failures associated with funneling drug cases through the criminal justice system were obvious, but identifying the root causes and thinking through what it would take to create an environment rich for a systemic paradigm shift remains much harder. During this period, I was introduced to law enforcement against prohibition and their vision that the solution rested in ending prohibition. I pondered that, pro that proposition as I took my first steps as a legal educator. As part of my re recent work with the Community Justice Clinic at the University of Maryland Francis King Carey School of Law, I have overseen legal representation, advocacy building, litigation, community outreach, and reform efforts largely surrounding the collateral consequences that stem from our current mass incarceration policies. The way our laws are currently structured, people may overcome an addiction, but they are hard-pressed to overcome a conviction. One of the most heartbreaking things to witness as both a law enforcement officer and a legal educator is a contempt of police culture held by many people living in poor and blighted communities. As a police officer, I understood that some people didn't like us. I got that. As a lawyer, I have witnessed a generational feedback loop within communities of color that perpetuates fear, distrust, and hatred for police officers charged with protecting their communities and maintaining order. It is clear that people of color in this country are being disproportionately impacted by our criminal drug laws and what is involved into an incarceration and penal model of social control. Meanwhile, affluent families, affluent families are afforded the privilege of handling substance abuse as a health issue, often covered by insurance. 
On the other end of this disconnect between the police and community is an equally troubling contempt of community culture emanating from law enforcement. Police as a group have become increasingly jaded about the prospects of effectively policing in impoverished communities riddled with violence and disorder associated with the business of the illicit drug trade. The violence surrounding the enforcement of drug laws leaves community members and law enforcement feel fearful for their personal safety. It is natural for officers working on the front lines of the drug laws to be traumatized when colleagues they work with too often become arbitrary casualties. The scars and fears associated with that reality reverberates through every relationship, every conversation, and every decision. Every decision between police and community. The contempt of community and contempt of police cultures speaks volumes about the abject failure of our contemporary justice system to deal with addiction. Because of our, mass, because of our reliance on mass incarceration as a form of social control, our courts are on the, and judicial arm are on the brink of collapse. Our executive branch is on the brink of economic insolvency, and our legislative branch seems unable to offer sensible solutions, sensible reform for our crippled government systems. No one is getting justice, not the victims, not the community, not the accused, not the people. One thing the Maryland State Police did do was to have the foresight to send command staff and non-commissioned officers to personally visit the Holocaust Museum, located not very far from where we are today. On some level, they recognized the potential for federal tyranny and mission creep. They warned us to take lessons from history and refuse to allow the mission of the federal law enforcement to detract us from our primary mission as local peacekeepers. But ultimately, actions speak louder than words. And while I understood the lessons for American law enforcement when viewed through the eye of the Holocaust, I saw our command staff and myself time and time again prostitute the peace officer mission for federal drug dollars. Over a 20-year period, our drug enforcement unit grew from a squad of seven into a bureau of 100 plus, courtesy of the federal government. And for our act of federal prostitution, local law enforcement is left holding the flag of surrender. We are bruised. We are battled, dirty, weary, and in desperate need of relief. Go away, Department of Justice. Go away, IRS. Your business is so much bigger and more important than marijuana dispensaries. Go occupy Wall Street. Go to Congress. Go occupy Congress, literally. Allow our protesters to demonstrate peacefully and take your fight to the white-collar crime rampant in our financial markets and our political houses. Get out of our shattered communities. Get out of drug policy. To those who urge the United States not to wave the flag, the white flag of surrender, I ask you what white flag? To those who urge us to surrender, I say your white flag is now a red flag that billows in the face of the drug war, 
a red flag bloodied and soiled and stinking from countless deaths of good guys and bad guys and simple people caught up in the crossfire, a flag marinated into the corruption and private greed that has stemmed from our drug policies. I say the only other choice is for America to hang on to that bloodied flag as justice crashes into the seas and our country crumbles to dusk like ancient Rome. Through my training, education, and experience, I've come to the conclusion that the only way to reduce the violence and restore communities most affected is to legalize every last substance. Let the medical professionals and the, and the regulatory folks design and implement an appropriate regulatory model based on the risks and toxicity, both short-term and chronic, associated with the individual drug and disease of addiction facing the patient. To be successful, this model re will require legitimizing the growth, yes, I said growth, manufacturer distri distribution systems now forced into an illegal, unregulated, unhealthy, and violent marketplace. Instead of building new prisons, we should focus on education, prevention, treatment, along with sensible time, place, manner, and advertising restrictions. If people commit violent acts against one another, regardless of whether they were sober or under the influence, they should be held accountable. But placing people under the supervision of the criminal justice system just because they elected to use, possess, or sell a non-approved drug is simply too invasive on human rights. Along the same vein, I think it is extremely important to show appreciation for our brave local law enforcers, for their commitment and diligence in attempting to enforce the rule of law. Mistakes have been made, enormous collateral consequences have been realized, but the women and men in blue and brown fundamentally signed up and put their lives at risk because they wanted to make a collective difference in our representative democratic society. In moving forward, it will be important to honor their work, offer them a seat at the table of reform, and give our forcers a path for a graceful exit from a policy they had little to no control in setting. I urge you to be patient with them. For just as our Vietnam veterans had a hard time adapting to a peacetime reality, so too shall our domestic law enforcers. As people and governments around the world began to recognize the community, economic, environmental, health, and human rights consequences of the U.S. drug policy control model, the need for a systemic paradigm shift must be embraced. The countries that have adopted the U.S. model need to rethink what that model is doing to their, your people and begin to question what impact continuing along the same path will pose to future generations. It is my position that the United Nations needs to restructure the current policies and treaties surrounding global drug policy. It is my opinion that the drug policies currently being promulgated by the United States meet and or exceed the human rights atrocities seen in South Africa at the height of apartheid. Decriminalization alone will not stop the violence. The profit and incentive for corruption must be removed. Seven plus or minus two large influential countries have to step up, and the United States has to be one of them. In June 2011, in response to Attorney General Eric Holder's request for a new season of The Wire, Simon responded that he and Burns were, were prepared to comply if the Department of Justice is equally ready to reconsider and address its continuing prosecution of our misguided, destructive, and dehumanizing drug prohibition. Attorney General Holder, I hope you are listening. It's time to take Amsterdam live. A piece, I think, for the American pilot to ending the drug war 
has to be an evolution of the truth and reconciliation panels that we have seen to bring peace to so many conflicts. Effective communities and the formerly incarcerated will need a safe place to have their grievances redressed by the criminal justice system players that have repressed them for so long with nothing to show but a net loss, a net loss for people, a net loss for communities, a net loss for humanity. Only then will a path towards healing from this devastating trauma be possible. I press you for the rule of law. Do not allow monetary incentives to influence your moral obligation to humankind. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> Holy smokes, Lee. That was, a, that was passionate. That was great. Thank you. Um, you're not for the drug war. I don't think anyone on this panel is, including me. I don't think anyone in this room is. Everyone here, I think you all made a tremendous case uh, for its flaws. Um, and I can just say, personally, I don't know anybody who would disagree with you on the broad outlines of that. I even know people involved in the drug war who share many of the of the concerns that, that you all do. The reason we still have it, it seems to me, though, is that the public, while not supporting the consequence of the drug war necessarily, is very afraid of the alternatives to the drug war. And that's the question I want to ask each of you before we open it up uh, to the audience. And it's, it's this, and it's a question on which a lot of my fellow libertarians I've noticed aren't very honest or, or direct and don't want to address, but it's a very simple question. If you were to decriminalize, or as you just suggested, legalize drugs, and took away the criminal element from the marketing of drugs, it seems pretty obvious to me that in that case, as in every other, people would respond to the conventional incentives. You make drugs easier to get, pure, people would do more of them. Now, my question is really simple. Do you acknowledge that that's true? And is that an acceptable cost, assuming it is a cost? Could each of you briefly just respond to that? Because I do think that's the central problem people have with the idea of stopping the drug war. I'm, I, I would say that people have, always will be, and will continue to be addicted to drugs. 1.3% of the population is going to be addicted no matter what, um, whether they're legal or illegal. The fact of the matter is we'll never stop the violence until we end prohibition. The, um, it's a big, hard question you asked. Uh, it's hard, not because the answers are difficult, but because they're, they're complicated and the data is, is uh, missing in for lots of things. Um, most people don't like to use most drugs. One of the interesting things is lots of people try drugs. Lots of people try crack cocaine, but almost nobody liked it very much. The story of crack being instantly addicting, the opposite was true. Actually, crack was, was a drug that, that almost nobody kept using. Um, uh, most people don't like to suck smoke into their lungs. Hardly anybody likes to stick a needle in their arm. Uh, most people don't like to put powders up their noses. So, so a lot of the recreational drugs that's currently consumed are not appealing to lots of people for lots of reasons, and there may well be tolerances and limits to what the general population can take around these things. Also, the story from alcohol prohibition is, is a very interesting one as well, which is that, is that pro, uh, con consumption of alcohol did not rise in, the, in, 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 in following repeal 
um, in the 1930s. Contrary to what lots of people think, it didn't. It, it took really until the 1940s and into the 50s before it began to rise, and it's still, to this day, below the levels that it was prior to alcohol prohibition. So it's not at all clear that consumption is going to, that, that the ending of prohibition will make a whole lot of consumption. And, and, and some of that consumption, if it does increase, will be less problematic. I mean, sorry, with all respect, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I know you study drugs. I don't know how many drugs you've done. Drugs are fun. That's why people do drugs, not because they're not fun. And you can sincerely say, look me right in the eye and say, more people wouldn't do, you know, do cocaine once in a while if it, if, it, if it were easy to get and there was no criminal penalty for doing it. I mean, that's just, that, that yes. I don't believe you. No, I think, I think for cocaine, for cocaine and for marijuana, um, there may be more non-problematic use. There may be. There may be, m maybe, more non-problematic use. Um, uh, lots of people could use cocaine who don't use it. People don't, don't use it. Um, uh, expense becomes, a, uh, becomes an issue, and, and that you know, regulating price becomes part of the story of how you, you mitigate the public health consequences of what you're talking about. Um, injecting opiates? It's not a very appealing thing for most people, um, and and but these are manageable public health issues that can be worked out, and prohibition doesn't address them at all in any way whatsoever. It only makes things worse. Tim, yeah, I think you've put your finger on a, on a sticking point for a lot of people. I guess I would respond by saying that yes, if you remove the criminal sanction. So I think it is likely that you would at least probably see an initial uh, spike in, in drug use. But, but again, we have to put this whole issue into a broader perspective. I mean, when we're moving away from alcohol prohibition, this was one of the arguments against uh, getting out from under alcohol prohibition. They said there was so, uh, consumption was going to soar and we'd have lots of social problems. Um, and we've also got the study from uh, Portugal where they decriminalized all drugs. And again, one of the, is that better? One of the, one of the objections was that, look, uh, if you decriminalize, uh, there's going to be a huge spike in use, there's going to be a public health crisis, and then it's going to be too late to turn back. Uh, Portugal has been at it now for eight years, and we've studied the results both before and after their policy and compared uh, the decriminalization policy in Portugal against other countries in the European Union that continue to take the hardline criminal approach, and things are, are, are doing well in Portugal. And I think the basic point to come back to is that the vast, vast majority of adults are perfectly capable of running their own lives without having politicians and police tell them what to do. Uh, we see that with alcohol consumption, and I think we'll, we, we see it with drug consumption right now. And we would still have to face some problems in a legalization uh, market. There would still be issues of addiction. There would still be issues of, of teen use. But you have to put uh, this back into a broader perspective, and that's that the vast majority of adults uh, use these things without creating problems for other people and we would benefit by the, the, the sharp decline in crime and having millions of people who are currently criminals in the eyes of the law by getting out from under this criminal regime, which has been said. It just creates more problems than it solves. Well, th thank you for being honest about that, that there's, you know, there are two sides. To, I mean, if, if you could still smoke in restaurants, I'd still be smoking cigarettes. I mean, people do respond. And hopefully, due to your efforts, we'll be able to smoke in restaurants again. Yes, sir. Just speaking to this issue, um, 
I feel that in terms of if you end prohibition, there probably will be increased usage uh, of a lot of drugs. But if you're going to support keeping prohibition in place because of that, you have to feel that that increased usage is more harmful to society than prohibition is. And I don't think that that's even, even a fair comparison. It's ridiculous. Any other comments? Yeah. All right. Yes, sir. It's interesting. My name is Steve Hankin. My, it's interesting to me that no one ever kind of thinks through maybe some of the the intended unintended consequences, and that is, if all drugs were legal, then we could set the drug companies free to come up with healthier versions of the drugs that are dangerous. Not only that, if somebody's now addicted to to alcohol, maybe they they would have used marijuana instead. And so we might have one less alcohol addict. Um, there's just a lot of things that I could see might happen if we legalize drugs that may not actually end up with worse medical, overall uh, medical harm to the greater society. I, I believe OxyContin was an attempt to do just that, wasn't it? Sorry, sorry. A man with a very long arm is in back. <laughs> These are the experts. Huh? Yeah, well, uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, having the having the criminal regime in place has prevented a lot of research in, into drugs. There's no question about it. I mean, the only way you can get do legal research into marijuana is by getting the approval of the DEA to get their supply. And there's a campus and farm down at the University of Mississippi. And what they have done is they have allowed research projects to look into uh, the harmful effects of marijuana, and they deny research grants for people who want to look at both the good and the bad from it. So a lot of research has been stifled because the government has a monopoly. You're right about that. Okay. Um, hi, my name is Esteban. I'm a uh, lawyer, Colombian lawyer, currently in Georgetown Law. I'm from Medellin, Colombia. And I just wanted to add something. Uh, one of, the, of my main concerns about legalization is the rise of consumption. But if you come from, the, from a, a country like mine, you can realize the amount of money that's spended in the, drug, in, the, in the war against drugs. We have in Colombia the second largest military force after the United States. The amount of money that's invested or, or injected into that military force is astonishing. The amount of money that has to go into training soldiers, training pilots, fueling helicopters, fighting guerrillas, fighting paramilitaries is absolutely astonishing. I think that if you legalize drugs, that money, you can actually spend that same amount of money into education, institutions, rehabilitation centers. You would make sure that even though drug is legal to get in the streets, you could still find ways for people to reject them. It has surprised me coming here to the United States to see that there is zero policies on education on drugs in the street. Like for example, if you go to Colombia, where consumption is not really a big uh, deal, more it, it, the, the big deal in Colombia's production, you can still hear uh, public uh, policies or, or, or campaigns in the radio saying stay away from drugs, don't do drugs. Drugs are portrayed as something bad in Colombia because we, we've seen the consequences, especially in a city like Medellin where you had the drug war 
so intense in the late 80s and in the early 90s that you, can't, you couldn't even go out in the street. But we, when I come here to the United States, I see drug treated, treated as a cool thing. You see the scandals with Charlie Sheen, with all these Hollywood actors. They're portrayed as idols. And to me, that's the biggest mistake the American society can do, not focusing on education. I understand that the drug war is also carried out here in the United States, as we've just seen in this panel. And I, I, I'm really sorry that the, the, the consequences or the results have been uh, so negative. But okay. the, the thing is, it's the focus that it's been giving to it. It's not a military focus. It should also be an educational focus. And it, drugs should be treated as a health issue, right. not as a military issue. Well, we tried some of that. I'm wondering if you all know how it works. So in the 80s, we had the Just Say No campaign. We had a lot of money going into federal anti-drug education campaigns. Did they work? And does treatment work? I'll say no, they didn't work. Um, and treatment, yes, does work. And I think our great am American success story is actually tobacco. Because through time, place, manner, and advertising restrictions, we have managed to reduce tobacco usage rates across all socioeconomic lines. We made it uncool by 40%. And yeah, you're not smoking in the bars anymore. And we did it through education and treatment. And I think we can do that with all drugs if we do it right and we do it in a measured way. I, listen, I also want to say it's really important to understand that the alternatives to the current regime of worldwide drug prohibition, and it's important to understand the drug prohibition is a worldwide phenomenon, that nearly every country in the world has laws on its books uh, banning the production and sale of, of the you know, opiates, cocaine, cannabis, psych some psychedelics. Um, ending prohibition is not the same as instituting a universal system of legalization. Um, drug, drug laws of any kind, of alcohol, of tobacco, are always local. They're always local. There, there, are, there are country laws, there are state laws, there are county laws, there are city laws, there are village laws. This is true in the United States, and it's true in every country in the world, and it will be true under some, some more tolerant and less punitive regime of, of, of drug control. Um, the, the, there may well be the free state of, of California or Northern California where, you know, psychedelics are available in the grocery store. Mississippi may well have prohibition until the 24th century. There's a whole range of possibilities within, within the world, and literally, literally by removing the single convention which controls worldwide prohibition or the or the federal laws on this you could uh, there will be you know not hundreds but thousands of experiments around the world of different ways of regulating of experimenting of tolerating of controlling of distributing and so on and human beings will learn a great deal from the capacity from when, when the repressive hand of prohibition is removed much can be learned just uh, one cautionary about uh, drug treatment and these drug courts is that you know sometimes the drug czar will say well we're not arresting people we're sending them off to drug courts so they can be educated and get treatment well what's happening in our system is that the court system is so clogged our prisons are so packed and overflowing operating beyond design capacity that these days people who are busted for pot they go to court and then they're given a choice you know do you want seven months in jail or do you want to go to drug court Everybody's going over to drug court. So it's, it, sometimes they'll say, well, we've got record numbers of marijuana people go in treatment. 
uh, it's because they're being, the inflow of cases is coming in from the arrests and they're being diverted away from an overcrowded court and prison system over into the drug court system. So, um, you know, it, it, you asked if drug treatment works. I think it stands a better chance of, of working first if the person admits he has a problem and wants treatment. If they're, if they're just being going there because they'd rather not be in jail, you know, this is just moving bodies around and warehousing people. I don't think it's productive. All right. Well, sadly, we are out of time uh, allotted. I hope you all will stick around. Uh, Tim, Harry Lee, thank you all very much. That was really informative. Thank you. Thank you.